Welcome to America the Bazaar. I'm your host, Jordan Rausch, and usually we have my husband, Jeremy, with us, but right now he's off doing army stuff. So instead, I have my sister and brother-in-law. Hi, I'm Ryan McElvain. And I'm Jared. (laughs) (laughs) And this is a podcast where we deep dive into all the stories that made America into the beautiful weirdo she is today. So weird. (laughs) (laughs) And so, like always, we are going to start with presidential trivia. And the question is, who was the first president to have a beard while in office? Oh, I don't know. Lincoln. That's a good guess. Do you have any guesses, Ryan? No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Lincoln sounds good. Well, the answer will be at the end of this episode, so stay tuned. Okay, so as I'm going to kind of put you guys on the spot. You guys are both going to be new teachers this year. So we'll see what our future educators (laughs) know about history. At least uh, neither of you are history teachers. Right. I mean, I have to teach history to... Little kids, but they can't fact check me, so right. it's fine. <laughs> On April 9th, 1865, General Robert E. Lee surrendered to General Ulysses S. Grant at the Apo- oh my gosh, Apomattox Courthouse in Virginia. This surrender signified the ending of the Civil War and the end of the Confederacy. Though this wasn't technically the very end of the Civil War. I mean, it was the beginning. The beginning to the end, yeah. where right. everybody kind of was like, okay, this is over. But it actually took, like, another 16 months to officially end it. Like, stop fighting. Yeah, and for, like, the Union to officially accept the Confederacy's um, surrender. But right now, there's no more fighting because generally just surrendered his troops. So, okay. basically, the end. Okay. Basically the end, not technically the end. Five days later, Abraham Lincoln attended a play at the Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., where he was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. Word of the president's death spread across the nation. Businesses closed, flags flew at half-mast, and those that had just recently celebrated the end of the Civil War now grieved for their dead president. On April 18th, Lincoln's body was taken to the Capitol Rotunda to lay in state for three days. His body was then placed on a train and taken to Springfield, Illinois, to be buried. Tens of thousands of Americans lined up along the railroad to pay their respect as Lincoln's body passed by them. During this time, Union troops were still searching for John Wilkes Booth and his associates. On April 26th, Union soldiers found the farm where Booth was hiding out and surrounded the barn he was staying in. The soldiers set the barn on fire, hoping to flush Booth out, but he stayed inside. A sergeant then saw Booth in the barn, and he said that Booth was raising his gun to point at the soldiers to shoot them, so the sergeant shot at Booth, hitting him in the neck. Booth, now wounded, was then carried out of the burning barn. Booth survived for three more hours before he died. His last words were useless, useless, while staring at his hands. So did anybody else see him raise a gun, or was it just that one? I think just that sergeant said he was the only one that saw. But... I think it was like, oh, we had to shoot him because he was going to shoot us, like, self-defense. But I really don't think anybody in the country would have been upset if they would have just even shot him behind the, like, you know, 
Right. Even with his back turned. Right. Because he just assassinated one of our, the greatest presidents yeah. ever. Beloved. Yeah. yeah. Despite dealing with the unrest that comes with a president being assassinated, the Union and Confederacy still had to deal with all the details that come with ending a war. There's a lot that happens, especially when you're trying to bring states that seceded back into the Union. This includes the exchanging of hundreds of thousands of prisoners of war. In total, the Civil War had created over 400,000 prisoners of war Jeez. for both sides. Castle Morgan was created in Cahaba, Alabama, as a POW camp to hold Union soldiers. It was 200 by 300 feet, so 6,000 square feet, and meant to only hold a few hundred soldiers. And that seems small to even yeah. hold a few hundred soldiers. Yeah. But before long, it was holding thousands of Union soldiers. The only source of drinking water was a stream that flowed through the camp, but it soon became polluted since the townspeople of Cahaba also used it for washing and disposing their sewage. Hmm. So did everybody Probably. get beaver fever? Like, pretty much. Like, it, they got everything. It's like the only clean water is now just, like, floating turds. And, <laughs> and like, not only is it already bad from the townspeople, then if you're, like, on the wrong end of camp, it's also everybody in the right. camp that's been using it. And right. then it would flood, and then so then the whole camp would flood, and so then people are uh, malnourished and crowded and standing in... Water, like gross sewer water, water, sewer yeah. water, yeah. In order to deal with the overcrowding, the Confederacy created another POW camp near Andersonville, Georgia, called Camp Sumter, and the first prisoners arrived in February of 1864, while it was still being built using slave labor. Because of the inflated price of lumber during the war, Union soldiers had to live in shanties made from scraps of wooden blankets instead of the wooden barracks originally planned for the prison. Like Castle Morgan, there was also a creek flowing through the prison, but it too soon became contaminated with human waste. Gross. Wait, so I got to backtrack here. Sure. So they still use slave labor even after the war had. No, so this gone. is so backtrack a little bit. So this is still while the war is going on. So gotcha. yeah. Gotcha. So sorry, I kind of jumped ahead and jumped back. Gotcha. We're just talking about the POW camps that they're now going to try to empty by exchanging these POWs and. The Confederacies, not to say the Union's POW camps were great, but these camps were awful. They were overcrowded. They were, like, there were no, there was no good living conditions. People were sleeping under the open sky, and sometimes, like, this creek would flood too, and so they're, like, literally just sleeping in standing water. Yeah. Nice. With no, they, and they didn't have clothes, they didn't have food, they didn't have medicine. The Prison at Sumter was meant to hold up to 10,000 men, but within six months of being used, there were over 30,000 POWs being kept there, and by 1865, the end of the war, there were almost 45,000. Jeez. There was a severe lack of food as well, and many prisoners died of starvation. Those who didn't die from starvation suffered through scurvy, dysentery, hookworms, and typhoid. When Robert H. Kellogg entered the camp as a prisoner in May 1864, he wrote... As we entered the place, a spectacle met our eyes that almost froze our blood with horror and made our hearts fail within us. Before us were forms that had once been active and erect. Stalwart men, now nothing, were mere walking skeletons covered with filth and vermin. Many of our men, in the heat and intensity of their feeling, exclaimed with earnestness, Can this be hell? God protect us! It's estimated that around 13,000 prisoners died due to the overcrowding and terrible conditions in the Camp Sumter prison. 
And like I saw pictures, these people are literally, like they said, walking skeletons. Many of them lost about an average between 80 and 100 pounds while they were being kept there. Oh my gosh. And this one guy, he went in as like a 16-year-old boy at 165 pounds and left at 95 pounds. Jeez. Just nothing. Nothing. They're tiny, they're malnourished, they're weak. When prisoner exchanges first began after Lee's surrender, the Union and Confederacy made a deal to swap prisoners on a one-to-one deal. And sometimes it'd be like, hey, we give you, you know, 25 enlisted men, you give us 25 our enlisted men, we give you so many officers, you give us right. so many officers. Um, but eventually trying to, like, figure out those deals before the prisoner exchanges actually happened was taking way too long, yeah, especially no for a war that was already over. So it's finally just authorized to just exchange prisoners without a corresponding match-to-match place. So it's like, okay, we're just going to exchange soldiers. We'll figure out how to even this up later on. But right right now, we just need to focus on getting these soldiers out of these camps. To speed up the process, the United States government offered to pay private steamboat captains $5 for every enlisted Union soldier and $10 for every Union officer they were able to ship back into the Union. The steamboats would pick up prisoners that had been transferred to Camp Fisk, which was located near Vicksburg, Mississippi, on the Mississippi River, and then would take them north. So this, and this is pretty good money yeah. for Holland. Oh, Five dollars and ten dollars in Civil War days. Yeah. So these private steamboat captains can make a lot of money getting these guys back. Interested in making money to pay off his debts, Captain J. Cass Mason docked the Sultana in Vicksburg on April 22, 1865. The Sultana was huge, 260 feet long, 39 feet wide at the base, and 42 feet wide at the beam. The Sultana was able to move up and down the Mississippi using her two-sided mounted paddle wheels that were powered by four tubular boilers. Each boiler was 18 feet long and 46 inches in diameter. The tubular boilers were much more efficient than conventional flue boilers when it came to steam per fuel load. However, that came with some safety trade-offs. Many of the flues in the tubular boilers clogged easily, especially with all the sediment in the Mississippi River, and even the smallest dip in the water level could cause hot spots in the boilers, which would make the metal weak and increase their chance of the boiler exploding. Yikes. This was especially dangerous because many steamboats were built out of several layers of lightweight wood covered in highly flammable paint and varnish. So it's like if fire did start in one of these suckers, it was... It was gone. It was gone. It was just like a matchstick. Yeah. When the Sultana docked in Vicksburg, the crew discovered that one of the boilers had a crack. The Sultana's engineer decided that unless this was fixed, he would need to lower the pressure in the ship's system to relieve pressure on the boiler. However, this would greatly slow down the Sultana's speed. The crew had a local mechanic look at the boiler, but the mechanic said that only a total refitting of the boiler could fix it, which would take several days to complete, and then by that time it might be too late to get enough prisoners to make the trip actually worth it. Yeah, but you don't go up in flames. Right. Yeah, that's what, (laughs) you know, you would, it's a trade-off. You know, you don't die, but, I mean, who knows? Pros and cons. Yeah, you make the cost. Yeah. Yeah. I think we know what decision is coming. Yeah. (laughs) We all do. (laughs) Captain Mason eventually convinced the mechanic to just put a patch over the cracked boilerplate as a temporary fix. Nice. Just slapped a piece of metal and riveted it on there and... It's good. Called it good. It'll be good once we get to Illinois. With the boiler kind of fixed, <laughs> <just like, laughs> semi, yeah, Captain Mason began to load the Sultana with as many soldiers as he could fit aboard. 
Mason spoke with a Union lieutenant colonel named Reuben Hatch about getting as many prisoners as possible. Hatch had a shady past of taking bribes and selling government supplies during the war and pocketing the profits. So, like, not a cool dude. Hatch said that he could overpack the Sultana with prisoners as long as Mason gave him a kickback of the Union's payment for the prisoners. Sultana was certified to carry 376 passengers, so it was supposed to carry 300 passengers plus a crew of 76. Okay. When Sultana left Vicksburg on the night of April 24th, it had 2,300 people aboard. I mean, they're just fudging the numbers a little. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, about six times as many as they were supposed to have. With a crack boiler. Yeah. All right. Yep. So this also included 100 paying passengers with men, women, and children that were trying to make their way north. Uh, a crew of 85 men and 22 guards. On top of all of the passengers, there were also 70 to 100 mules and horses, 300,000 pounds of sugar, and 90 cases of wine. He like, this just... guy was, like, trying to make as much money yeah. and just one boatload. <laughs> really going for it. Yeah. <laughs> Room was so tight on the ship that it was almost impossible to even move. Like, you were just shoulder to shoulder with everybody. On April 26th, the Sultana made a quick stop in Helena, Arkansas, and a local photographer started to take pictures of the boat. So many prisoners went to one side of the boat to wave at the camera that the Sultana (laughs) almost capsized. (laughs) The boat then continued northward, making stops in Memphis and Hopefield, Arkansas. At night, many prisoners had to sleep shoulder to shoulder on the deck of the boat with no covering. At 2 a.m. of April 27th, one of the boilers exploded, and then almost immediately, a second boiler exploded, and caused such a loud explosion that it could be heard in Memphis, which was seven miles away at that time. Which, I mean, we knew this was coming. Yeah. 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 The blast tore a massive hole in the boat that stretched from the Sultana's bowels all the way to her stern. Shrapnel from the exploded boilers ripped through the packed groups of prisoners, and white-hot coal sprayed across the wooden planks and beams of the boat. A Michigan soldier aboard the Sultana said that the first thing that I knew or heard was a terrible crash. Everything seemed to be falling. A piece of iron glanced my head, and in the excitement, I thought the rebels had fired a battery on us. Not more than three feet from where I was lying was a hole clear through the boat. It seemed as if the explosion of the boilers had torn everything out from top to bottom. Many on board died instantly, especially those that had been packed near the boilers. So there's literally no room, so people had been placed literally right near the boilers. When those exploded, they just died instantly. Yeah. But those people probably got the better end of the deal, right. honestly. Right. Many more were blown into the Mississippi River and were awoken from the sleep when they finally hit the cold water. Oh That'd be awful. And also at this time, a lot of people didn't know how to swim. So there goes all those people. And those that did know how to swim, many were so weak and malnourished from being in these camps for so long that they didn't have the strength to swim, especially with this cold, fast-moving water. Yeah, yeah, you're in the Mississippi River. That's not going to be easy either way. Right. And so they just also just drowned. One guy said he saw 20 people drown, like, all at the same time. A man from Ohio that was aboard said everywhere steam was escaping, women were screaming, soldiers and crew cursing and swearing, horses neighing, mules braying, splinters flying. Another man said, I saw many men mangled, some with arms and legs broken, others scalded and screaming in their agony. The entire midsection of the boat was overtaken by flames, and when a large gust of wind came through, the smokestacks toppled over, one going each way. 
So then oh people are now gosh. being crushed by the smokestacks and on fire. Those are like the worst ways to die. Yeah. Drowning and on fire. I mean, that patch job might have been a mistake. I mean, maybe. <laughs> Who's to really say, though, at this point? Sections of the deck became weakened by the fire and collapsed, trapping and crushing passengers in the lower sections of the boat. Those that were still alive had to decide between drowning in the cold Mississippi River or burning to death. A Tennessee soldier said, I saw men, while attempting to escape, pitch down through the hatchway that was full of blue curling flames, or rush wildly from the vessel to death and destruction in the turbid waters below. Just like, kind of like that... Would you rather? Yeah. Could not make a choice. Yeah. Those that jumped into the river would then come up to the surface trying to grab onto anything they could get their hands on, even if that meant the nearest person and then both of them drowning. So it's like somebody, they said, one guy was like, I saw plenty of strong men, strong men actually swimming to shore and then somebody would come and grab them trying to save themselves and then they'd both drown. Wow. Tennessean Andrew Perry said he watched a mule that kept swimming for a floating piece of the wheelhouse. The mule would get its front teeth on the raft, and the man aboard it would knock it off with a club. Oh. It would come again for several times. The mule almost capsized the craft. I don't think I ever saw a more earnest fight. The mule finally gave up or was killed. It's like that That's scene awful. from the Titanic. Yeah, exactly. Where, the board. Yeah, the mule is Jack. The guy on the wheelhouse oh is Rose. Okay, and bye. he's like, there's not <laughs> enough room for both of us. And the mule's like, but there is. But there there's is. Room. I can lay right next to you. <laughs> We can both live! No. He's like, no! I mean, it's not funny. It's it's really sad, actually. That's awful. You just kind of laugh because then you just cry. Yeah. You don't. Those that were able to keep afloat in the Mississippi were scattered by the current to both sides of the river and downstream. Some were able to hold on to scraps of wood until they washed up ashore, and some were snagged by tree branches and were able to then climb up the branches to dry land. The screams of the victims could be heard as they floated past towns, and rescuers hopped on their boats and tried to haul in as many survivors as possible. Many of the sur- many of the survivors pulled out of the river were suffering from hypothermia, broken bones, and second and third degree burns. Eventually, the flames in the Sultana died down enough that survivors floating around it were able to climb back aboard and fight off the remaining flames. They were able to find enough unburnt rope to tie up what was left of the sultana to a clump of trees they were floating past. The fire started to make a small comeback, and all those that were alive on the boat just jumped off again onto makeshift rafts or nearby trees. Finally, the fire went out, and the sultana sunk at 9 a.m., seven hours after the boilers exploded. Rescue efforts kept going throughout the day, though no one was found alive after 12 hours after the explosion happened. Efforts switched from rescue to body recovery, which continued until the second week of May. Some bodies were found as far as 120 miles south of Memphis. Jeez. The river just took them. Several bodies were never recovered, including that of Captain J. Cass Mason. Around 785 of the boat's passengers survived the explosion, which is kind of impressive. Yeah, it is. That many people actually survived this. Yeah. But that brought the total death count to around 1,800. Which is also crazy. Which is more, which is 300 more than the death toll of the Titanic. Wow. So more, like a lot more people died on the Sultana than died on the Titanic. Wow. Which was a huge cruise liner. Yeah. And I've never heard of Sultana. Sultana. No. Three different military commissions were tasked with investigating the Sultana disaster. 
none of the commissions looked too deeply into what happened, concluding that it was an accident. They're like, well, it was obviously the boiler. Like, there was a patch. Right. We have yeah. testimony from, like, this local mechanic that he was like, you should fix this. And they're like, yeah, just slap a piece of metal on it. Right. The only officer who was put on trial was Captain Frederick Speed, who was charged with neglect of duty leading to the overcrowding. Speed pled not guilty, but several witnesses that he was counting on to testify on his behalf resigned their commissions. Speed was found guilty, but the verdict was eventually overturned by the U.S. Army's Judge Advocate General because the passengers didn't die because the ship was overcrowded. They died because of the faulty boilers. So, like, even though he had neglect of overcrowding the boat, the overcrowding the boat is not what caused it to sink. Which could I mean, very be help. debated. Yeah, I understand that, but also a lot less people would have died if they didn't overcrowd. overcrowd. Yeah, if yeah. there was, you know, what did I say, like, 1,800, literally 1,800 people died and, yeah. and their limit was literally 1,800 less than what they had aboard. Yeah, exactly. So... It was also possibly quickly overturned because no one in the nation really focused on the disaster. Like, we don't really know about this now, but also even people back then didn't really find out about it. One of the deadliest maritime disasters in history simply wasn't big news because it was overshadowed by the end of the Civil War, Lincoln's assassination, and the death of John Wilkes Booth, who had literally just been killed a day before the Sultana explosion. That makes sense. Yeah. So this is Like, like the original 2020. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Also, the men aboard were mostly enlisted men, and none of them were prominent war heroes. So it's not like these big war heroes died. It was just kind of nobody's that no, you know, nobody even really cared about, you know, I'm not saying that like, but like as the public. Right. They hadn't, I mean, they were all prisoners of war, so they hadn't heard of these people in so long anyway. Big names. Yeah. Some of the survivors were able to move on from the disaster, and others suffered terrible PTSD and dealt with alcoholism and depression for the rest of their lives. There was a story of two boys from Indiana named Romulus Tolbert and John Maddox. Romulus and John fought side by side for the Union, ended up in the same Confederate prison camp, were both put on the Sultana, and then both survived, and then they both returned to their hometown in Indiana. Romulus got married, built a house, farmed, and rarely spoke about the Sultana disaster, seemed to have a good life. While John had several failed marriages, couldn't hold down a job, and suffered through several health problems. The last survivor of the Sultana died in 1936. He was like 16 when he was aboard the Sultana. Some never accepted that the explosion was an accident. Instead, they figured it was Confederate terrorist attack. Some of the survivors believed that when they stopped to load more coal onto the boat... A Confederate spy snuck aboard and placed a bomb near the boilers and destroyed the Sultana as a last act of defiance against the Union. In 1888, a St. Louis newspaper printed an interview with a Confederate saboteur named Robert Luden that took credit for the Sultana explosion. However, there was never any concrete evidence that Luden was ever near the Sultana. So it could have just been, you know, how sometimes they have criminals be like, yeah... They want to get fame a little bit. However, there was another boat that the Confederates had placed a time bomb on that had exploded. Oh. So it's also possible. Of course, the boiler patch job is an easy target to blame, because that's what everybody figured it was. But the engineer on board testified that there was no loss in pressure right before the explosion. 
He was like, you'd think if it explode, it was going to explode, there would have been a sudden loss of pressure before it did. Right. So, if that's true, then the explosion was actually probably caused by the engine requiring maximum steam pressure in order to carry the extremely heavy load against the heavy flood current of the Mississippi. Because it's April, and so there's actually, the Mississippi is actually flooding at this point, which creates a stronger current, which makes, means you need more power right. to get up the river. Which would and make... it's extremely overloaded. Yeah, which would make them responsible for overloading. Yep. So, this could have caused one of the boilers to rupture, which in turn would have caused the rupture of the other boilers. So, wow. really, it's up in the air still yeah. about what caused it. Pretty much everybody is to blame. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you shouldn't have overpacked it. No. Because that just caused even more people to die, whether it was going to rupture anyways or not. Right. I mean, and even if it was a Confederate spy, you just made more soldiers die because you put them all together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Two more steamboats using tubular boilers also blew up about a year following the Sultana disaster, and soon insurance companies stopped covering tubular boilers. By 1866, most steamboat systems had been outfitted with the conventional flue models, and the Hartford Steam Boiler Inspection and Insurance Company was created to create and maintain safety standards for steamboats. Because after that, people were like, hey, should somebody be in charge of, like... <laughs> so there had been no, like, codes for steamboats before nah, then? So the 1800s, do. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. Do whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the story of the worst maritime disaster in American history that nobody knows about. Interesting, yeah. I definitely did not know about it. No, me either. It's crazy that you hear, like, I get why, like you said, with um, the end of the war and Lincoln's assassination, that you didn't hear more about it. Right. But it's so weird that it had way more people die than the Titanic, but we heard Yeah, so and much like, better, like, I think the main part is that it was never even really news- when it happened. Yeah. Which even with like Lincoln being assassinated, you would think that it would at least Yeah, with that many some kind of ruckus. Yeah. But I think it kind of people also were like, well, a ton of people died in the Civil War and we're just kind of like what's another Right. And I think do you think maybe them not knowing who to blame could have had something to do with it too? Possibly. Like, if they thought it was like Union in- like, it was based on the Union. They didn't want to take the blame for it. Like, we just killed a whole bunch of our own soldiers, so let's not... Yeah, I don't know. It's just bad. Yeah. Either way. Crazy. Uh, my sources for the story are Abraham Lincoln's Assassination, a History.com article. Inside, inside Andersonville Prison, the Civil War's Most Brutal POW Camp by Katie Serena. When Nobody Remembers America's Worst Maritime Disaster by Aaron Blakemore. The Sinking of the Sultana, a Disaster Lost in the Lingering Fog of the Civil War by Brady Dennis. And Death on the River by Noah Andre Trudeau. Alright, so we'll go back to presidential trivia, which was, who is the first president to sport a beard while in the White House? And Jared was right. It was Abraham Lincoln. Oh, good job. It definitely makes sense why you said we couldn't have a... A poster, because yeah. it'd be too easy. In 1860, 11-year-old Grace Bedell wrote to Abraham Lincoln while he was campaigning for president and said, 
I have yet got four brothers, and part of them will vote for you anyway, and if you let your whiskers grow, I will try and get the rest of them to vote for you. You would look a great deal better, for your face is so thin. <laughs> All the ladies like whiskers, and they would tease their husbands to vote for you, and then you would be president. I love it. <laughs> Lincoln wrote back, as to the whiskers, having never worn any, do you not think people would call it a piece of silly affection if I were to begin it now? Nevertheless, Lincoln started growing out his beard soon after, and when he was on his way to his inauguration, he visited Grace to show her his beard and said, You see, I let these whiskers grow for you. Aww. I hope she grew up to be a campaign manager. <laughs> she was like, look. I've got this down. I, everybody loves a man with a beard. <laughs> they will vote for they you if you have a beard. But yeah, it took tell Lincoln, and they said, you know, I mean, George Washington and John Adams, they both were clean-shaven, but they said it was really probably Thomas Jefferson, who kind of was the stylish president, who never had facial hair, who right. kind of set the precedent for not having facial hair. For a hair. certain look of the president. Right. Yeah. High society mentioned have beards. Those right. were for frontier men. <laughs> and then kind of after Lincoln, there was a lot of presidents with beards. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, if you like this podcast, we just ask that you share it with somebody and just let somebody know to take a listen if you think anybody would be interested in any of these stories. I want to say thank you to my sister and my brother-in-law, Ryan and Jared, for joining me since Jeremy's gone. Thank you. And we just hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy. And until next time, stay, stay weird, America. America.